Guten Morgen, Paul. Guten Morgen. Come into the office. Grab, grab your seat there in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're looking, you're looking well. How, how are you feeling? I'm okay, Doctor Hardwood Croissant. Um, I, I was just wondering about, you know, I feel like we've really been getting places with the last few sessions. I feel like, you know, we're on a good, a good track. Ah, well, um, I wanted to talk to you about that before we got into the the nitty gritty. Um, I would have to respectfully disagree. I, I think we're going to have to discount the last few sessions. I don't think we've been making that much progress after all. I think we are going to um, have to restart our sessions and start fresh, start clean. Make, make a new start, if you know what I mean. Oh, so so nothing from the last few sessions counts anymore? Um, some of it, yeah. Bits and pieces, yeah. Not, not everything. Which 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 bits? Um, there were some good bits that we will keep. Other stuff we're gonna start fresh and move forward. Yeah, how does that sound? Oh, uh, sounds a bit confusing, but uh, I trust you. <sighs> of course you should. I'm a doctor. Trust me. Yeah. When you try your best but you don't succeed When you get what you want but not what you need When you feel so tired but you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come straight OCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're uh, talking about every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths on all the way up in order and giving them a score. And this time we have come to 2016 and it is the Rebirth Special. Now, uh, this is very kind to my guests because they only had to read one book. And, um, you know, that's very unusual for an event. But, uh, yeah, this sort of set the tone for a new era for the DC Universe. So... uh, I am joined today by Jeff Lester from the Wait What Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, hello, Paul. Glad to be here. <laughs> and Martin Gray, uh, our devoted friend and listener. I do, I do. I listen, and I just, I just blush to hear your voice. Oh, that's very kind. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about this event, let's talk about who made it. So it was written by Jeff Johns, has art by Gary Frank, Ethan Van Siver, Ivan Reis, Joe Prado, Phil Jimenez. Matt Santarelli. Uh, it's lettered by Nick Napolitano. It's got colours by Brad Anderson, Jason Wright, Brian Miller, and Gabriel El Tayeb. And there's no women involved, so we know it's edited by Eddie Berganza. 
<laughs> so, yeah, it was one special, and it led to a, a, a line-wide re- relaunch. So the DCU became Rebirth at this point, and uh, all the books sort of started again. We got a Rebirth special for every single book, and then they started at number one and kept going. And then, uh, yeah, numbers changed after that. So, But Martin has kindly done a synopsis of what this one is about. So, Martin, do you want to tell us what's this one all about? Well, yes. So, Paul, you say we only had to read one comic, one 80-page comic with lots and lots of events. So I'll get through this as quickly as I can, but it might go on a little bit. Just tell me to, you know, go faster as necessary or just to shut the heck up. (laughs) Anyway, the book is divided into four chapters called Lost, Legacy, Love and Life. And the issue opens with an unseen voice telling us about their life as they approach Earth. They speak of a watch that their uncle gave them. It becomes clear the visitor is Wally West, the third Flash. He talks of how he was displaced from his reality and can't find his anchor, the one who should be able to draw him back home. So he's looking for someone else to ground him, and he heads for the Batcave and finds a costume Bruce Wayne pondering the mystery of the three Jokers. He manages to appear before Batman, but the cave crusader doesn't recognise the speedster, who's been de-aged and put back into his zappy little Kid Flash costume, the red and yellow number. As Wally vanishes, he points Batman towards the note left for him by his father from the Flashpoint timeline, Thomas Wayne. Wally explains to the reader that as reality realigned after Flashpoint, someone outside of time attacked, stealing ten years of everyone's lives. As Wally says, heroes that were legends became novices, bonds between them were weakened and erased, legacies were destroyed. Wally knows the thief of time is still out there, and the lost speedster won't give up trying to put right what once went wrong. Wally reappears before an elderly gentleman in an old folks' home. It's the Golden Age hero, Johnny Thunder. Wally pleads with him to use his magic thunderbolt to bring back his old Justice Society colleagues. But Johnny says he threw the thunderbolt away and sobs. In Metropolis, a mystery woman's been picked up by the police. She wants to meet Superman and she says she's seen the future. It's Saturn Girl from the Legion of Superheroes. At Ivy University... Teaching assistant Ryan Choi discovers the whereabouts of his missing boss, Ray Palmer. The Atom tells him via a video message that he's discovered someone has tampered with time. And in trying to solve the mystery, he's discovered the microverse. Ray wants Ryan to don a spare size-changing belt and go looking for him. At Cord Industries, former Blue Beetle Ted Cord can't contain his excitement that young Jamie Reyes, the new Blue Beetle, has agreed to be an intern. When Jamie leaves after their conversation... The mystic hero, Dr. Fate, appears and warns Ted that the scarab fused to Jamie's back isn't alien technology as believed. It's magical and very, very dangerous. Back in Gotham, Damien Wayne turns 13. In Portland, Oregon, New Green Lantern Jessica Truth is told by a Hal Jordan hologram that she's to be paired with fellow rookie Simon Baz. In New Mexico, teenager Jackson Hyde is coming to terms with his Aqualad powers, as his mother fails to come to terms with him being gay. On a stormy island by Themyscira, a woman gives birth to a child, the reborn Darkseid, and tells him that Wonder Woman has a lost twin, Jason. At the scene of the New 52 Superman's recent death, heroes gather. Two of them, Black Canary and Green Arrow, meet for the first time, and sparks fly. At a motel in California... The Lois and Clark from the pre-crisis Earth, who were on the new 52 Earth by way of the Convergence event, discuss the younger Superman's death. They believe he will rise again, as this Superman did post-Doomsday. Then Mr. Odd, 
so mysterious he makes the Phantom Stranger seem like Wikipedia, if he doesn't tell us Clark that he, Lois and Baby John aren't what they think they are, and neither was the new 52 Superman. On a desert island, Aquaman proposes to Mira, watched by the wandering Wally. The romantic scene gives Wally the spiritual jumpstart needed to finally find Linda Park, who was his wife, his anchor. But this younger version of Linda doesn't know him. She's scared, and her instinctive denial of their love sends Wally straight back into the speed force. Wally sees two heroic figures in Gotham, one of whom is named after the city, looking at the bat signal, considering whether to come out of the shadows. And in Louisiana, Swamp Thing and John Constantine are talking. Looking for someone he can connect with before he's absorbed into the lightning forever, Wally blinks before Captain Boomerang, Cyborg and Dick Grayson. He sees his cousin, Wallace West, in action as the new Flash, new Kid Flash. Finally, he's drawn towards his mentor, Barry Allen. If Wally can just pass on the secret of the time tamperer to him, he would be okay with vanishing forever. Wally tells the older Flash to ask Batman about the letter from alternate world Thomas Wayne. After Linda, he doesn't expect Barry to recognise him. But as Wally fades, Barry touches him and memories return. More than that, Barry grounds Wally and he's freed from the speed force. Wally tells Barry about the missing time and reassures him that it wasn't due to his flashpoint cock-up. Batman looks at the letter from Thomas Wayne, then sees something glinting in the crevices of the Batcave. It's Rorschach's smiley face badge from Watchmen. In an epilogue, we visit Mars, where we find Wally's watch from the opening of the issue floating in space. It deconstructs. We hear a conversation. One of the people talking is named Adrian. Dot, dot, dot. Wow, thanks, Martin. That was great. That was excellent. Cracking. I have to say, um, you know, uh, no offense, but um, I've done a podcast with my co-host, Graham McMillan, for a long time now. And I appreciate the fact that for whatever reason, I'm not allowed onto the podcast space without a Scotsman in tow. I think that it's a very (laughs) smart protective preventative gesture i'm not sure why but it's it clearly works but i have to say on our podcast we would never be so amateur hour as to list everyone who worked on the comic and then tell the plot within the first few minutes that's something that you should really wait 45 minutes into your discussion to really (laughs) sort of offhandedly say so that your viewers have context i'm just i'm just shocked i'm just flabbergasted (laughs) Sorry, I don't know anything about editing, so I can't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, you have a lot to answer for. What with this well-organized podcast you're doing? I'm just aghast. Just aghast. (laughs) I'm English, honestly. You're not a Scotsman. Oh, you're not? Oh, I'm so sorry. I, uh, but you're in, aren't you in Scotland? Am I, is this what is throwing me off? They they let us know. They let us move. Uh, Well, who who would have known? Who would have known? (laughs) See, I'm from California, and they more or less refuse to let me leave the state. But again, this may be some sort of strange restriction on me. Um, I, I know I'm keeping us from talking about the real the real meat of things, which is rebirth, which, Paul, I believe you were going to, to, to ringleader us into doing. <laughs> well, don't apologize for being yourself, because you're not here um, for other reasons. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's well put, thank you. No worries. All right, we usually start with something positive. So uh, what do you think was a really big deal from this, Jeff, and or some moment that you enjoy or, you know, something that stood out to you? Anything that stood out? Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, I think this is actually quite a well-crafted individual issue. It really, I think, does a certain fine job 
of putting forward essentially its thesis statement and going about, I'm not necessarily sure proving it, but sort of doing that kind of enticing way of you want to read more. You want to see how these things come together, how they connect. For those of us who are long-term DC fans, the return of Wally West is in, is to me, you know, genuinely moving. And it's a, it's a, it's a very lovely piece uh, in, in that sense of Johns who had written Wally and the flash for quite a number of years is very familiar with the character. And, and so is able to uh, intuit, I think, the best ways to make Wally embody his narrative, um, the narrative that he's trying to put forward here. Now, one of the things that I think is is interesting about Rebirth, and I'll, I'll try and keep it somewhat short, is it is a very much a mission statement uh, in a way that, that, to the extent all of DC's major events are, I would think in a way their mission statements or correctives, but maybe like crisis on infinite earths is probably the only other one that I can think of where the events that are happening within the DC universe are more or less being transmitted or telegraphed to the fans as this is what the DC universe is is going to be or is going to become sort of in the same way that crisis on infinite earths was a corrective that sort of decided to merge all the parallel earths into one cohesive universe this similarly is a very very um declarative uh statement this comic where jeff johns is saying that that some force behind the scenes has stripped the DC universe of its power, as has weakened it. And and one of the things that is really fascinating about Rebirth is, to me, it's one of those books that is, in that sense, when you strip it from, it, it has to be considered within the full historical context. Like, this issue was uh, 80 pages, incredibly well done, was originally offered for like a dollar or two dollars on the first printing and then something like six or seven dollars for the second through 19th printings and was more or less accompanied by a DC roadshow in which Jim Lee and Dan DiDio more or less made an apology to the retailers and to the readers for essentially putting their foot wrong with the new 52. So unlike the sort of thing where uh, other things are kind of like, you know, I think we need to correct the problem of why Monel's um, cape is red, not blue in like this one comic and blue instead of red in another comic. Like this is, this is a, a corrective or is being issued as a corrective for the company as much as um, within the universe itself. And I, and I think that that is uh, in that sense, it is um, crazy easily ambitious and 
in many ways, very, very successful for what it does. Now, I definitely want you guys to be able to talk about it, but I will say that's a little bit like saying that Triumph of the Will is a well-shot documentary that looks very <laughs> lovely. So, I mean, just so you know, I don't mean where my ultimate take lies, but in terms of the technical nuts and bolts and being connected and feeling like a cohesive DC comic that I enjoyed reading, this is it's very, very strong, I think. Okay, Martin, do you want to add your comments to that? Well, for that and stay fashionable, but yeah, Jeff's got it entirely right. I mean, this this comic was, when it came out, we knew, we knew for a few months before it was coming out that DC was saying, you know, we've got it wrong, which I found a stunning thing for them to say because the first, the first uh, year or so of the New 52, they had mega sales i don't know whether it was you know a lot of it was due to speculators but you know they did they gave they, they gave the retailers a boost for quite a while mm-hmm. and obviously then bit by bit the momentum went down and you know the whole the holes in the in the in the idea that you know younger heroes would necessarily be better and more in- interesting than slightly older heroes that that wore away so i think it probably was right after five years to do a bit of a, a reset but just so publicly come out and say you know we got it wrong, you know. We yes, we, you know, the stories we removed, we removed hope, we removed love, we removed the things that you liked about the heroes and heroines and villains that came previously. It was such such a massive miracle. I'd never come across anything like it, and I expected the comic when it came to just be sort of a bit of a bit of a technical exercise and probably embarrassing to read. Mm-hmm. And then this this came out, and it was you know the absolute top creators on it you know jeff johns is at his absolute best you know putting his heart and soul and his love of the dc universe in there while not ripping off anyone's limbs or heads <laughs> uh, it, was, it was such a fantastic read and it was it was promising so much but yeah i mean asking about individual moments i mean lords i mean there was i'll limit myself to a few but again you can always tell me to <laughs> to move along there get that theatrical crook pulling my neck off (laughs) but uh, yeah big big deals I mean the first big deal for me was you know realising that that was that was Wally West speaking at the start and I hadn't quite made the Watchmen connection at that point but then when when you get to the end the epilogue and you have the nine panel panel grid and the narration of the, the floating clock and you see that Jeff Jones really is connecting to the world of the Watchmen and when the colour the colour scheme changes on the clock and you know they're even using watchmen type lettering, it's just is he really going there? Yes, he's really going there. And that was, you know, quite my little comic fanboy breath away. But in between other things, I mean the revelation that ten years had been stolen, that's such a magnificently huge daft comic book concept, but it works in the DC universe because reality's been written so many times previously and you know that this sort of thing could probably happen. But I love the fact that they said that, and you know, they the made the idiocy of the new 52 five-year timeline canon, and hinted that it would be fixed. I like that a lot. And the visits to Johnny Quick and Saturn Girl, implying that the heroes and heroines of the past and the future will soon return. Love that. Chop mm-hmm. Lawson Clark, who I'd enjoyed in the in the Convergence event, that was unexpected and brilliant. I didn't realise where they were going with that. Uh, a couple more things. In fact, no, no, I could go on and on. My favourite moment of all was was that moment when Wally and Barry connected mm-hmm. in wonderful, wonderful pages and panels. Uh, just just the electricity on the page from, from the artwork, I think it was Phil Jimenez at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colour 
the colours of the various colourists. It was just stunning. It was just such, it was such a big emotional moment because on the one hand, I grew up with Barry Allen, but then Wally West really, you know, really earned his seat as the Flash. He was absolutely wonderful character who, I think he at least matched Barry Allen's numbering, number of issues. And it was so horrible to have him not in the comics and basically forgotten for years and years and years. So to have him come back and be recognised by, you know, the guy that he revered, it was just, just wonderful. I probably I probably had a little a little lump in my throat at that point. But yeah. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I have a friend who's a massive Flash fan. Has been collecting, you know, Flash comics in, since the seventies on up. Um, and this was a huge thing for him. I mean, it, this he loved this issue, and it, it basically, you know, mm-hmm. said, "This is what's coming. This is going to spell, you know, change everything." And you know, we're going to get our continuity back. And uh, yeah, um, we did get a line one relaunch, of course. But uh, one of the things we didn't get is uh, a payoff for every single thing in this comic. Um, you know, it. Pretty soon, I think it became aware that uh, you know DC was getting torn in a couple of different directions, uh, probably by the Scott Snyder camp and the Jeff Johns camp. And uh, since Jeff was probably very busy and not able to write all the comics he wanted to write, um, this all these dangling things sort of just got to sit there for quite a time um, until mm-hmm. you know someone started doing different things uh, than what was set up. So you know the dominoes were all set up, and instead they got. Uh, you know, replaced with bits of cheese or something. So nothing really toppled very well after this. Yeah, and I think it's a pity because as a fan, I was going, oh, I'm down for this. I want to see where all this goes. I want to see the Justice Society brought back and I want to see the Legion of Superheroes brought back and I want to know what they're doing in the present day, um, even though Jeff Johns has done that before with the earlier JSA stories with um, Brad Meltzer and things mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, it... it it teased us, and then um, you know, not everything paid off. Um, in fact, it's messier than ever. I think they're the only two things that really didn't pay off. But they were the, they were the biggest ones, the Legion and the JSA. They were they were the ones I wanted the most. And obviously, you know, Jeff Jones had sat sat down, as we know, with all with all the all the writers of the series. So you know, he talked about they talked to them about you know where where they saw the books going, where he thought the books should go come to some kind of compromise and then he'd written into the books in you know the start of the new directions so they all paid off but obviously they had no plan at that point for the legion and jsa set down and that didn't pay off in it yeah i mean again we got we saw nothing else really going on of satin girl for a couple of years till doomsday clock came out and then again that that didn't really pay off because Doomsday Clock seemed to be getting rewritten every couple of issues. <laughs> so yeah, that was. I mean, just putting myself in the position of what Jeff, what Jeff was saying. This as a unit, as an individual comic, I think it does work very, very well. But obviously, one of the points of the podcast is to talk about what did pay off and what didn't. But at this stage, the comic, I think the comic was the success. It was. Uh, let me ask you to, because um, my knowledge of what comes after is in incredibly scant. I more or less followed, followed Tom King's Batman, maybe kept half an eye on something. And thanks to the miracle of DC Universe, the issues of Doomsday Clock sort of show up like bad acid flashbacks. You know, you just <laughs> you're sort of like minding your own business and suddenly they appear and then they, they're gone again. And you don't know the next time you're going to be terrified by one. But I am curious because there are ways in which some of the characters in which we see here, particularly for, for a very strong, cohesive part of it, 
end up in Doomsday Clock. And then I'm assuming more or less that Jeff Johns sort of said, like, you've got to put these characters on hold and whether or not they did or didn't uh, is is kind of part of my my theory about where things kind of start going screwy with this. But I do want to ask you both, did the stuff with Ray Palmer pay off? Is that a thing? Was what did what did become of that? Yeah, it was. Uh, yes, that paid off within about 18 months, two years later. It took a while. But mm. that was that was taken up by Steve Orlando and his Justice League of America book, which was actually, you know, terribly overlooked. and Actually, pretty, pretty good. It was much, much more. It was much more of a success in my mind than his books like his more personal books like The, Un- the Unexpected and mm-hmm. Electric Worries. It was, you know, very cohesive. It followed the storyline of Ryan going with the Justice the new Justice League into the micro the microverse, which I always thought was just a Marvel thing. But uh much yeah. than it. Yeah, I mean what that was that was following up and it worked pretty well, yeah. But it's yeah, it's a shame that one that one took so long so long to come out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just well, curious because are are uh, Paul? I mean, are we allowed to sort of talk about um, spoilers? Are we supposed to sort of talk about this as a self-contained unit? I say that as someone who is not, thanks to the miracle of the Ashen flashbacks, I still have not read the last issue of Doomsday Clock, but <laughs> I do know. I sort of feel like it. I don't feel like it would be much of a spoiler to say that yes the watchmen characters do end up involved and come into conflict with the dc heroes as promised at the end of this series right um that's okay to say yeah we can do spoilers yeah absolutely i mean that's part of the i mean these aren't current comics um and the impact and legacy Mm -hmm. is a critical part of them so we do want to know what was picked up and what uh you know what led somewhere else and if we're going to give it a score we're going to say which things really mattered and which things led somewhere interesting and uh yeah this right, one this one's right. a mess <laughs> yeah it definitely is i so the reason why i mention it is that i do think that it's very interesting that you have a comic in which it leads to an event in which uh basically a blue guy with a with hydrogen atom on his forehead like there's an appearance by a little tiny blue guy with an atom on his head you know what i mean and i'm sort part of me always wonders i'm like if there was any character in the dc universe that would be an interesting um nemesis for dr manhattan instead of it being superman it would be the atom it would be another quantum physicist right and they have the visual representation it's shown here in the issue and i kind of had that moment of like was this supposed to be something that was going to pay off in doomsday clock because the the a lot of the scenes i feel in the in say the first third or half of the book are very strongly related to to the stuff that ends up in doomsday clock the stuff with johnny uh quick in the old age home saturn girl in the police station and then i believe it's more or less followed right up with ryan Choi and the adam and so part of me was like i wonder if these events are going to move in there and in a way sort of the, similar to the return of Wally West and the JSA and the Legion, the return of Ray Palmer as the Atom. And I think kind of in that classic DC way as the little guy who always gets overlooked, but actually has the solution, you know, from all those classic Justice League stories, like 
when I came across those pages, I'm like, oh, this is this. It felt substantial enough in a way that I'm if someone said like, well, yes, he does show up on the next to last page of Doomsday Clock number 12 and shrinks <laughs> Dr. Manhattan and throws him into a spirit jar. I'd be like, that explains it all. You know, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to ask you guys, because part of me is like. It, it would be a shame if this didn't pay off. And part of me feels like it is a very dangling little tantalizing strip of meat, sort of the same way that you have the Legion talked about with the return of Saturn girl. And maybe this is too much of an evocation of the very tumultuous change in the status quo to the Legion of superheroes after crisis on infinite earths but more to the point john burns um retconning of superman is part of me feels the epilogue so purely gives away the game for doomsday clock in the sense of like oh there's dr manhattan on mars and then you start seeing the way that for example the way the pandora explodes is so similar to the way that rorschach explodes and little bits and pieces come together but for a while when you're just kind of seeing big hands and you've got the legion it's kind of fun to imagine that there might be a red herring fake out and what you're looking at is the time trapper doing some sort of nefarious thing that steals 10 years from everyone and also more or less folds in all of the DC concepts to more or less fight one another. Now, obviously, that's not what happens. And in a way, I can see I can't see where many people were nearly as excited about that as the idea of what Alfred's going to say to Rorschach when it comes to ordering breakfast. But I do I, I do think that there is something to be said for a few more, even a little bit of narrative feints might have very well helped them here because Doomsday Clock, the D- DC Legacy very much promises what people are going to get and then more or less delivers just much further down the line into the 21st century than any of us were anticipating. Mm. Yeah, I... It didn't get to do what it was meant to do, I would say. Yeah? How, how do you think? Well, I mean, uh, just kudos for that bit about the Adam versus Dr. Manhattan. That's brilliant, and that would have been better than what we got. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, I think Jeff Johns' Doomsday Clock was really compromised by what Tom King was doing and by what um, Scott Snyder were doing as far as, you know, here's these elements that you wanted to play with and we've, you know, moved the, the ball down the field somewhere else and, you, you know, you've got to do something different. So... Uh, and Martin might correct me on this. Doomsday Clock is kind of like an Elseworlds now. Is that you know what you feel, Martin? I think so because they they had the business in Ed Lewis with the uh, was it the, the, super, the Superman theory about how how American American scientists were basically creating super superheroes and Martin Stein had really manipulated manipulated uh, Ronnie Raymond into becoming Firestorm and there was all all sorts of things going on. It was it doesn't it doesn't really fit fit with what we've seen before and since in DC, DC comics. Although, it, it, at the risk of ruining, I, I don't want to ruin the last issue for Jeff. But uh, the, you know, the, the promise of Saturn Girl in the Legion in, in that book for the first few issues of Doomsday Clock. You know, you expect one version of the Legion, and when we finally get it's the Brian Bendis Legion that turns up, as if that was to, you know totally rewritten. So it seems that you know parts of it seem to fit with the current DC universe. Parts of it don't, so I think we have to just say it. 
it's basically an Elseworld. But things like the return of Martin Park Kent, which I, I think they, I think that was like the penultimate issue of Doomsday Clock. Jeff Johns brought back Martin Park Kent from the dead, which was great. That's that's ongoing in DC Comics right now. So it's just in a very muddy, sticky place, Doomsday Clock, you know? It's like I can try and keep it straight in my head by saying, you know, it, just as it was immediately post-crisis for a few months, the DC universe is in a state of flux and certain, you know, there's a plasticity, certain things sticking, certain things aren't, and we don't really know until the post-death metal reset comes what will be there for the next decade or so. But, I mean, I think, Paul, you got it right when you said Doomsday Clock's a mess and things change. I mean, there was lots in there that I enjoyed, but lots that I hated, like the business with Firestorm and the Superman theory or whatever, whatever it was called. So, yes, I'll be interested to hear if, on the way at what podcast, when Jeff read the final issue of his chance <laughs> with Graham, see what he thought. So hopefully I haven't spoiled anything huge there. No, 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 no. That's incredibly helpful. Um, I do want to say that one of the things that is interesting to me, because I'm always a big fan of the meta, uh, is how much the two of you talking about Doomsday Clock is a little bit about how Wally talks about the DC universe in DC Rebirth, right? Like, there is you're kind of like, I don't think this is what it was intended to be. And then it takes a turn and it's almost like people from above were kind of going in and rewriting Jeff Johns and like you're expecting one thing and then another thing comes up. And so this is actually one of my big my other theory on par with Adam versus Dr. Manhattan is that. I think there's a case to be made that in DC Rebirth, what Jeff Johns is saying and more or less gets very muddled because of the way that Alan Moore is brought in as sort of a, you know, a patsy, for lack of a better term, is, is that Jeff Johns is saying the DC universe went totally wrong and it's all because of this bald guy who's not one of us. In other words, he's talking about Dan DiDio. So, you know, the idea that that Jeff Johns is that Dr. Manhattan actually does sort of stand for a form of editorial interference from somewhere else. We know for the most part that Dan DiDio is a huge Marvel fan, not much of a DC fan, and is and is incredibly hands on has has screwed up a number of events by jumping in and having things be written and overwritten and rewritten by the last minute. I do think that hearing you guys talk about this and also we we talk about Snyder and we talk about Tom King. These guys are guys who are more or less being handed assignments or being told to do things like part of me would love to believe in a perfect world that Tom King. I mean, let's just look at the nature of Wally West here. <laughs> Wally West comes back is uh, as a symbol of lost hope. By the time we get to Doomsday Clock, he is, what, a mass murderer who seems to have, like, the powers of Dr. Manhattan, like, you know, gelatinously applied to his head, is wearing a horrible outfit, is more or less stumbling around saying that no one remembers him or loves him. And it's kind of like, I can't help but feel this is not the legacy that Jeff Johns was like, yes, this is what I'm going to bring back. Now, separate and apart from my own individual issues with how Johns, the sizzle that he sells as opposed to the steak that he brings to your plate, that I think that there is something where 
the Dio kind of has to have the trains run on time, and he's very aware that they have to be interesting and things have to happen. And honestly, he's more than happy enough to take the points from someone else's project and spindle, mutilate, and fold them into his own projects. Uh, Paul, you mentioned how the shortest episode of DCOCD is about Countdown to Final Crisis. And we're pretty well aware that that is a situation where in preparation for Grant Morrison's Final Crisis event, Dan DiDio laid the groundwork by essentially like completely more or less destroying the event before it started and was only more or less saved by Grant Morrison ignoring that. And fortunately, Grant Morrison was like most of the DC reading public at that point. So it was it was somewhat easy to do. But, I, you know, I do think that there is a form of interference that is being talked about in DC Rebirth that maps very nicely into the sort of runaway train that is Dan DiDio's DCU. And that may very well be that by the time that we get to Doomsday Clock, um, you know, knowing the roadmap that Jeff Johns has, and yet also being aware that like, hmm, the Legion of Superheroes is kind of important to bring back. And I, you know, if you are being generous, you could say that one should not necessarily wait four years, four more years to do it. So, so, I mean, do you guys think that that is, um, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how tin foil Hattie is that theory? Do you think? Of course, Dan, Dan did you was, was, was still there at DC at the time. So he's obviously, you know, he was, he was, you know, giving us the mayor culpas and he was behind it, behind this project and pushing it. So he's obviously, you know, a, you know, a big, a big enough fella to, for all his, you know, perceived faults and faults, real faults, no doubt, to, you know, be able to take, to be able to take the criticism of his new DC. But, but I, 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 I like, I like the idea. I, I, it reminds me, you know, with the way that we didn't get the follow through on on the Legion from from this project with Identity Crisis. You know, Brad Munzer more or less presented it as uh, originally kind of a murder mystery love letter to the DC comics that he grew up reading. And then, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years later, you sort of start hearing details like I was given a list of characters that were on the quote unquote kill list and that, you know, I wanted as they were there were certain um, spins to the story that were more or less dictated to me. And then, you know. I acted as if I cooked them all up out of whole cloth. And that is sort of the nature of the game. In fact, sometimes I do wonder if the reason why um, comic book writers uh, for licensed properties online have a tendency to be, um, you know, run from being gracious to absolutely berserk is there's a certain level of um, Vietnam vetness there of like, you don't know, you don't know what it was like, man. You know, <laughs> Dan DiDio was behind every corner. And there's kind of a little bit of a thing of the, there's a little bit perhaps of a facade, a creative um, scrim that is put up that is very much the idea that the creators are the guys who come up with all the ideas 
for myself, it would be wonderful if that was the case. But the few toes that I've dipped into the creative market, and and I'm very lucky in that I have a, a spouse who is a graphic designer and came to hear her stories, which is there's a, a, a lot more endeavors if they're not, you know, truly yourself and self-created, there is there is somebody who's usually behind the scenes being like, well, this is nice, but um, can we get it two days sooner than we need? Or uh, that very exciting moment that you put in there with the atom, we're going to spin it off and make it our own thing. Or, you know, basically like this was perfect, but instead of re- making it red, I want you to make it all blue and have it all fit. Like, I I do wonder how much of that, like, Jeff Johns has been a good soldier for DC in, in many ways. And, and it has carried, carried him very, very far up the ladder, far more than any other, you know, traditional creative has come in the history of, you know, maybe Paul Levitz himself is the only other person that I can, in a sense, sort of think of as somebody who started out as a self-processed dc fanboy and essentially ended up with such a a tremendous amount of uh power and responsibility within the firm but there is there is a little bit of a complaint at the core of dc rebirth and what i think is interesting is martin talks about the idea that that Dan DiDio was was uh very generous in going out and doing a mea culpa and could be comfortable um, essentially, you know, this being put on his bald head. But in fact, I think I think that it's really necessary for Jeff Johns to pull in Alan Moore as a patsy and be like, this is the guy who really screwed things up. I'm not bad mouthing my boss who signs my checks or my business partner with whom I'm steering a universe. I'm not bitchily talking about this person at all in an 80 page special. I'm actually, you know, blaming the guy who stepped away from DC comics three decades ago. He's really the guy to blame. You know, well, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Cause I didn't, I didn't read that as Jeff Jordan's blaming Alan. Alan Moore for anything at all. I just thought he was just taking the characters and, you know, at some point he maybe had had the fanboy thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if the Watchmen characters met the DC characters? And while that's something I would never, ever have suggested because, you know, I'm not, I'm you know, I don't revere Watchmen. I enjoyed it as it came out. found it a really interesting experiment. But, you know, because I was so aware of how much Alan Moore's formalism was, in that, and that Dave Gibbons was doing, you know, sort of little sculptures of streets and things, I wasn't able to get into it, into it so much as a story as a piece of expert work. But I still don't think DC should ever sort of mix the universe. I, I would have kept the Watchmen separate. I wouldn't have bothered with sequels and prequels and things, but they're there. And Jeff Johns, obviously, you know, them having happened, it seems it seems he thought I shouldn't say obviously. It seems he thought, yeah, let's have let's see what happens if if the universes do mix and yeah, looking looking for someone to blame for the new for the new fifty two. He just maybe thought it would be in- interesting for them for the universes to blame Doctor Manhattan, but not necessarily to blame Alan Moore as the creator of Doctor Manhattan. Does that make any any sense at all? I mean, it does. And I'm certainly a very, very defensive Watchmen fan, as listeners of the podcast know. So, I mean, what do you, what, what's your opinion on it, Paul? If you have. Uh, well, I, 
I would say that Jeff Johns is sort of he's doing his own Jeff Johns verse now. So I mean, look at Three Jokers, and it sort of it sits apart from everything. It came out at the same time as the Joker War, um, and it doesn't jibe with that. Uh, but I think ironically, Jeff Johns has found the creative control he wants in the TV world because he, you know, it's his vision of the Titans that um, you know is being made. It's his vision of uh, Star Girl that's been made. It's even his vision of the mm-hmm. Doom Patrol that's been made. So I think he's probably much more creatively fulfilled by what's happening there and uh, a lot less interfered with, which is really ironic considering it's the television world and um, you know the way he. He's sort of just doing these side things in comics now. He's not in the core of the DC universe. He's not one of the creators who are driving the narrative of, um, you know, continuity directions anymore. So, you know, he's. I think he's probably a lot happier outside in um, television. And you know, considering the shakeups at DC, he's, you know, he he he's got a role. He can do, you know, a sequel to the Three Jokers when he wants, and you know, he doesn't have to fit with what everyone else is doing. Well, that, which is a good point, and I think it's fascinating to the extent to which DC Rebirth is, like you said, a, ends up being a bit of the Johns verse in the in the way of there are characters and there are plot threads that come out of Jeff Johns's Justice League that move directly into DC Rebirth. There are elements here, such as you know, the Three Jokers, essentially starts as uh, as a a little revelation in the midst of one of his Justice League storylines, then I forgot, was given a relatively decent shout out here, and then more or less goes on to uh, finish up in the Three Jokers, which by being such a tremendous hit is does not really end. But each 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 version of that, more or less, it's like watching uh a cell divide and split away. Like by the time you get to three jokers, it's, it's almost hermetic in the sense of any connection that you feel to the DC universe or even really to the previous storylines as, as I am sure you are both aware in terms of the relative controversy of the way in which three, the, the knowledge about the three jokers is handled within the three jokers event in a way that sort of more or less makes it sound like the previous revelations as shown here in DC rebirth and, and earlier in justice league almost didn't happen or did they, et cetera, et cetera. So he has become more of his own self contained uh, unit, but it's interesting seeing how much that developed from uh, out of Rebirth in a way. Rebirth is, is this Rebirth special is very much a point where it seems to suggest that Johns is going to be having a, a tighter role in what happens with the DCU uh, and that DC Rebirth is addressing his concerns about what what the DC universe lost under New 52. And then, like I said, I'm not, I I myself, by not reading a ton of the Rebirth books, don't necessarily know how much of that, again, was just continuing to give us a lot of sizzle, but the steak that came to the plate was not unlike the New 52 steak. It just happened to have a slightly different chimichurri sauce, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think the the thing is it's sort of saying, well, 
all this stuff you didn't really like about the new 52 doesn't really matter because we're going to sort of reconnect to the continuity before that. Um, but the connections are not going to be avert. So, you know, we're just going to do what we like with the characters that you like um, and, you know, take what you like from the new 52 and keep it or otherwise, you know, it 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 meshes more seamlessly with what came before, even though it doesn't. Like, you know, Blue Beetle is clearly alive mm-hmm. now instead of dead. Um, so... Yeah, it's, it's it's weird, but it, I mean, it was it was a nice promise at the time. That mm-hmm. I, I think I think we can cover some more of this in our scoring. So uh, at this point, I would usually play a promo for Wait What, but I don't think you have a promo, do you, Jeff? No, no, I don't, and it's a shame because I'm clearly a very strong disincentive to your listeners uh, just by <laughs> me speaking so much. Oh no, no, you. You brought what I wanted straight to this, you know, the hot takes and the the editorial meta stuff. <laughs> a little about what Wait What is for anyone who's unlucky enough not to have Yeah, do a, do a commercial for Wait What right now, live. Well, yes. Uh, okay, everyone. So if my voice did not irritate you or perhaps it irritated you, but you were like, what if there was a more sensible, mellifluous Scottish voice in counterbalance? And so it's sort of that Manichaean good versus evil sort of, you know, if that's the kind of thing that sort of holds you wrapped. Wait What Podcast is a podcast that I do with the beautiful and talented Graham McMillan. Uh, we essentially do three podcasts a month. Two episodes are Wait What, where we essentially talk about the books that we are reading, um, talk about the comics news of the world, and more or less uh, impugn each other's character. And then uh, once a month, we also do an installment we call Drock, which is our read-through of the complete uh, case files, uh, Judge Dredd, the complete case files. Uh, We've been doing that for something like two years now or something like that. And... uh, Before that, we also did Baxter Building, which was a read through the first 416 issues of the Fantastic Four. So if you're interested in the Fantastic Four or you are um, always curious about how to find an entry point into Judge Dredd, Graham was very familiar with the character, a well-loved character. And for me, it was very much a, a jump into the unknown. Um, those are uh, nice ways to sort of get a sense of the babble, the logoria, if you will, that, that, that sort of tends to flow from us. But if you uh, if you don't want to deal with a lot of confusing references about what's happening in comics, news and or our personal lives, whereas if you do want that and you turn into tune into Wait What podcast, like I said, we're there for you um, three times a month, no matter what. We, mm. we just don't leave. Yeah, I come yeah. for the erotic cooking man. yes the erotic cooking manga yeah i'm really we're it's it's i'm glad that we're talking about this paul i don't quite know when this episode is going to be up but we are recording in a drop tonight and then next week we will be recording our uh end of the year episode which will have graham's best of list and probably me talking about my favorite japanese erotic manga of the year so it's going to be a it'll be it'll be a fun fest uh, depending on your definition of fun or fast. So. And I would like to thank Martin because he actually put us both in an article together of recommended podcasts at one point. So, all right, yeah, now thank you, Martin. Oh, Martin.
you should talk about so sorry i i'm so sorry paul i don't mean to override no, no, no. things but uh, martin also keeps a, a wonderful blog too dangerous for a girl which i think that he would uh want to talk about right brightening my dear sir i love your blog man i, I love yeah. his positivity and he's you know just you know it's always good to know i can go in and get a reliable opinion on something from martin yes yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, f- I feel Martin does is a wonderful embodiment of um, not knowledgeable, but inclusive. You know, I, I really do feel that, uh, you know, that Martin sort of is very much a long term fan, but also has a very strong handle on how much comics um i i just feel he summarizes them well in a way that i without having read the comic i'm like yes this sounds right i this sounds like an accurate take and it also sounds like a take that i can hand to people who maybe don't necessarily read comics not that those people will get within you know 35 to 50 feet of me, but if they did I would be able to to send them to Martin's blog and they would be able to read things that I think they would connect with um, rather than just, you know, as sometimes happens, very, very concentrated takes that spend a lot of time, um, you know, worrying about uh, the, the, the Photoshop effects being laid on the page or something, for example. Thank you very much. Well, it, it keeps me off the streets. I'm, I'm a lot more confident writing than I am sort of speaking, because when I'm speaking, I keep saying sort of things like that. <laughs> I've been talking about eventiness. Last with the eventiness, I've forgotten. <laughs> OK, I'll just explain how the scoring works. So the way this works is um, we have four categories and we give scores out of ten. Um, and the categories are eventiness, writing, art and covers, and the impact and legacy. And because there are three of us, and if we all gave it 10, we'd get a score out of 120, which is not very um, decimal for my liking. Uh, one of us is the semi-OCD, or the semi-OCD, depending if you uh, live in America. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that person gets their score halved. In this occasion, I will be the semi-OCD, semi-OCD, if you will. So, um, mm-hmm. let's go. So, Martin, what do you think this is in the eventiness scale? How eventy is it? It's extremely eventy. I mean, as we said, the comic addresses the DC universe and says that, you know, the DC universe that we've had for the previous five years was just wrong. And it's promising to fix things. Could you, you know, cube channel a bing voice, could you get any bigger? I mean, the whole <laughs> DC line changed, you know, right down to having cover dress with you know curtains opening up at a new stage of the DC universe and I I can't imagine really you know how how you could have had a big a bigger a bigger event and I hate hate giving total top big number scores as if I'm on Dancing with the Stars but I can't see how it would be bigger I, I have to give it a 10 oh do it man do it proud <laughs> And Jeff, Jeff, you're <laughs> welcome to our scoring. Oh, yeah. How do well, you how do you want us to do this one? I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here in the scoring, Paul. Uh, very nice. Um, well, I have to say, on the on the one hand, I think that Martin is absolutely right. On the other hand, and this may not be where we're going, is the eventiness score going to be the repercussions? Is this where we judge the repercussions of the event? Because as mentioned. No. 
it sort of becomes a hermetic thing. Oh, well, in that case, (laughs) I'm going to give it a 30 because as (laughs) as Martin pointed out, it's 10, but it's even more 10. No, no, no. Seriously, let me give it a nine or an eight, because one thing that I will say that I think is interesting is, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning of the episode, Paul, the numbering changed. um, But. Rather than it being a a total continuity reboot, which I think DC is used to having, you know, that sort of continuity electrocardiogram that sort of, you know, when the when the body is sort of lying there convulsing on the table, um, (laughs) essentially the the things that all happened in the new 52 have still happened when the rebirth books start. There is just the spin on it that the whole universe is essentially strangely Gnostic. Um, so I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a nine is what I'm saying. Yeah. For my money, the eventiness of this, it, uh, it wasn't quite as eventy as I remembered. Like I remember this being so exciting and setting up all these things. And some of the things it sets up, I think are very minor. Um, and you know, it's saying, you know, this, you know, this, what's happening with Jackson Hyde is just as important as what's happening with the JSA. And, you know, to my mind, it doesn't really uh, all fit on the same level. So I'm going to give it a seven for eventiness. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, you can keep talking about the writing, Jeff, and give that a score as well. You know, like I said, I think that I'm going, I, I will also give this a nine. I can't fully go to 10 again i'm trying to do my best as um which i've uh, to to separate this from any larger moral and ethical repercussions but you know and i feel as an american i'm uniquely qualified to do so but i think that i think that it's 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 very well put together by johns i feel like you can sort of see bits and pieces of the seams and the joints where, for example, um, you know, Jeff gets the email being told, you know, like, hey, play up that sexy green arrow black canary angle because that's where we're going to be going in the Rebirth books. And uh, there are points where the joints uh, kind of show. But for the most part, for doing a mission statement that has a surprising amount of heart that ends up being telling sort of a full story in a way of setting up the conflict for Wally's return and having that be resolved in a dramatic, surprising way. I, I, I got to give it high marks. I just have to. With the writing. Okay. I'll do my bit on the writing. Wow. I think it's incredibly ballsy, uh, thing to have Pandora blasted um, by <laughs> Dr. Manhattan. It's uh, it's like, it's so contemptuous of the New 52 and saying, this person who is the embodiment of the New 52, she appeared in every single first issue of the New 52. We're just going to blow her away now um, and not really explain <laughs> why or, you know, any sort of reason for it. It's just symbolism. So, you know, everything you liked about the New 52 or didn't like, we're going to blame it on this character and now we will annihilate her in a grisly fashion. (laughs) So, I think it's very well written and it really does, you know, uh, it does get the heartstrings going with the Wally West and Barry stuff. Um, And, yeah, I'm going to give it a nine for the writing. Uh, Martin, Mm -hmm. your say. Well, so far as Pandora goes, I mean, all the characters in the issue were getting a bit of a reset, and it just so happens she was reset as a pile of ashes. (laughs) (laughs) On the writing, I mean, I need a T-shirt that said I'm I'm with Jeff because one of the notes I 
it has an awful lot of heart. It has action, mystery, subplots, and yes, heart. But I, I mean, it's so well plotted out, and it kept me gripped from beginning to end. But I have to deduct a point for the utter, utter pants notion that Wonder Woman has a Wonder Twin that isn't Nubia. So I'm giving that. In mm. fact, good eight. I'm going at eight. Ooh, ooh, wow! I, I love the original Nubia. Mm-hmm. It's it's a good hill to die on, Martin. I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> As far as the art and covers are, I mean, uh, I love Gary Frank's art. It's wonderful. Um, I do have a visceral negative reaction to Ethan Van Skyver now, um, and I don't know why mm-hmm. that is. It's just over, over the last few years, I've become less enamoured with his art, and I don't know why, um, to the point where I would happily throw away my copy of uh, Green Lantern Rebirth. Um, yeah, so that art hasn't aged well, and it just seems more political than it used to, that art. Um yeah. Anyway, um, I'm going to give it a nine for the art and covers. I think Gary Frank does beautiful work, and the other contributors are doing really good stuff. Um, and the covers are, yeah, they're beautiful. And yeah, just uh, I love that the emotion on uh, Ted Cord's face when he talks about uh, the scarab being magic, and he just looks so excited with his goofy glasses. Um, yeah, it's just <laughs> delightful. Yeah. So nine for me. Martin, what do you think about the art and covers? Well, the art covers, I mean, the covers are both great illustrations, you know, promising an epic sweep of story that is delivered. But Brad Anderson's uncharacteristically pale tones on the Gary Frank image, they're disappointing. It just looks, makes the whole thing look a little bit drab and washed out. Whereas the Alex Sinclair hues on the Ivan Rice alternate cover, so much brighter and more in the spirit of rebirth, you know, a big, a big blast of optimism. And also, I love that on that cover, you have the classic Garden of Fox Heroes and Egg Timers image with two JLAs and one JSA. So, cover two for the win. As for the interior art, yeah, spectacular. You've got a cadre of DC's top talent being put to good use. And I especially, yes, like yourself, Paul, I especially like the Gary Frank art. I mean, has anyone ever captured old age in comics as well as he does when you get when you get to Johnny Johnny Thunder, who I expect I've called Johnny Quick at least once on this broadcast. I mean, <laughs> you, old people in comics look like mummy-faced Aunt Mays, but he really does look like a guy who's lived. And, I mean, to ramble on a tiny bit more, the Phil Jimenez drawn reunion of Barry and Wally. It's just superb in terms of emotion expressed yeah, facially and in the body language. And as I was making you know, making notes, I only I only just spotted one panel that say it's on page fifty two in the digital version. That as well as being a close up of Wally and Barry, it's got tiny figures of them both at the bottom of the panel, bottom of the frame. And there's actually a big Batman's head right in front of you, in front right right next to them. And I'd never seen that despite reading it about three times previously. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's just very clever, or I'm just very, very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) The four colourists, they do a tremendous job. Characters look excellent. Storytelling's great. The show your moments work. Ten. Ten. Wow. And Jeff. Jeff. Well, let me tell you here. Oh, I for, for one thing... One of the things that I think as a DC event from 2016 that I would be tempted to give it a uh, 10 from is, as far as I know, there's no Jim Lee cover in there. There's no Jim Lee cover. There's no there's not anything where suddenly Jim, who has like six and a half minutes to draw, like 
cranks out sort of a thing and passes it off to is it Scott Eaton who's his no who's his regular inker um anyway I'm not a big I, I there's certain parts of Jim Lee's vacuum packed art that I enjoy but I really sort of hate how it ended up being you know sort of stamped into uh uh most dc events is a cover an alternate cover or a sketch of someone you know flashing their buttocks at us it's never never really my go so that honestly would be a 10 anyway but for myself i think separate and apart from that one of the things that is uh truly remarkable about dc rebirth is you know at 60 some odd pages and for an event book, uh, it feels like um, a cohesive art structure. And that is something that is incredibly difficult, as we know, looking at, at uh, other DC events. There's usually a, a way in which um, even like, for example, the what was it called? Like introduction to the beginning of the countdown to Final Crisis or, you know, that one dollar. <laughs> special that seemed to which to me at that point had more or less seemed like the new bar in kind of promotional material in terms of teasing storylines but feeling like you were getting a cohesive story that was going somewhere and had a bunch at the end i feel i really feel like the art here is of a cohesive piece so much so that when i looked back i'm like Oh, right. By very smartly having Gary Frank apparently ink or embellish or however he did it to be able that things look the same. Um, you really just sort of start seeing sort of where the storytelling becomes a little bit different. Or like you said, where Ethan Van Skyver gets a little too Van Skyvery. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I would say that if I can't give it a 20, you know, and you're not going to let me give it 10 simply because Jim Lee isn't in it. Let's just, let's just call it a 10. Um, <laughs> definitely. I would say a solid 10. Okay. All right. And now we come to the hardest bit, which is the impact and legacy. So, um, ah, yeah, they served up the meal. Did people eat it? Did people eat the meal? Did they come back for more? So, uh, Martin, where do you think the impact and legacy is? And it's a difficult category at all, Mr. Paul. The impact and legacy is huge. I mean, yeah, we've already spoke about how the heavily hinted at return of the JSA and the Legion didn't, you know, well, the JSA, you know, they keep popping up, but not in any sort of actual proper DC canon way. They keep you know, coming up in the past doing alternate versions or whatever. But, uh, yeah, and the Legion took a while to come, and then there weren't quite the Legion he had planned. But, uh, no, you, you, you know, you get the return of an important DC relationship as me and Aquaman get engaged because one of the things at the beginning of the new 52 was marriage would make you know make the hero seem too old for the kids to relate to but here they are getting you know getting engaged and uh, you know you have the return of the old romance of oliver queen and diana lance they'd been married when the new 52 came and that had been wiped away mm. it's like wally west has brought cupid with him from the speed force and you know you get tied to this you get the setting up of the convergence suit man and lois that is the pre-crisis pair to replace the new 52 counterparts that turned out to be pretty darn massive and i couldn't see that coming at the time and that brought us the tween john kent who was just a baby at this point and he became you know so popular that he got his own comic with damian wayne sadly it also set up the awful awful mr oz oz business mr oz having previously been in jeff john's action comics unexplained and turned out to be a twisted joel awful 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 
but that's not important right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Ryan Toy business is followed up in Justice League. There's a setting up of a new Blue Beetle book. There's that introduction of the idea that Wonder Woman has a male twin that James Robinson had to work with when he took over Wonder Woman for a while. There's the Green Lantern series with Jessica and Simon are positioned. Aqualad and Damien are put in play for Team Titans. And, you know, Pandora, legacy, her legacy is she's gone splat. And a couple more things. You know, the comic nods towards the upcoming Gotham and Gotham Girl business in Batman. And upcoming Swamp Thing stories. But the, the biggest thing is that the ridiculous five-year timeline's gone. And that that's a hell of a legacy in itself. So I would say I'd give it nine out of ten. For, in fact, no, eight out of ten. Take one mark off for the JSA not coming back immediately. And one mark off for the Legion. Because... I really think they shouldn't have had Dooms had a, this comic come out until pretty much everything was going to happen within three to six months. But no, I, I, I think the legacy is easy to see and it's massive and I'll give it eight. Mm. And Jeff, what do you think? Oof. Well, it, you know, it is it is a tough call. I think I'm I am. the. Uh, this is out of all the scores um, where I'm clearly being completely arbitrary, it's it's obvious that none more so than this in that I don't think that I'm really following uh, many DC titles uh, currently. And so I can't say for sure, but I'm, I'm very strongly um, willing to say that it might be a two or a three. Again, we have Wally West come back here sort of as a symbol of hope. And then, uh, you know, uh, last I saw him, he was kind of a Dr. Manhattan uh, trademarked winger in Dark Metal. And before that, like kind of, a, you know, unhappy serial body swapping serial killer. And um, I think I think that John's where John's I, it, it, maybe 10 or 15 years from now. Everything will pivot and repivot back into this and it will be, you know, we'll be on the, the 75th issue of The Brave and the Bold where Rorschach teams up with a different superhero every issue. But I, I think generally this has been so overwritten already by, say, everything that Scott Snyder has done or been ordered to do. Uh, with metal and dark metal, and there is so much that is being layered on there. And this, I feel, does not, for something that, that um, if you think about it, if you got somebody to talk about, say, Watchmen over the last couple of years, they would go on very excitedly about the HBO series and not Doomsday Clock at all. And uh, even the events in Doomsday Clock, which seem to happen uh entirely separately from uh you know the events in the dc universe it really does seem as as you pointed out by dint of it being sort of a jeff johns verse um i i just think it's got to be a two at this point and maybe maybe time will will change that rating yeah, I yeah, I'm sort of with you, Jeff, but I'm very pleased to have Martin's balance of opinion. Like, uh, yeah, I think 
I, I'm going to score the uh, the legacy and the impact on the intent of it not being picked up. Um, you know, if this is the coming of Christ, then uh, Heroes in Crisis was the Antichrist to it, um, as far mm, as mm-hmm. uh, undermining and completely standing for something different. Um, you know, Wally West, the symbol of hope. Um, oh, he's killed lots of people and he's completely insane. And you know, there's a sort of half-hearted attempt to rehabilitate him now. Uh, but for that reason, I'm going to give it a three. So uh, yeah. But um, that does allow us to add up our score. So um, my total score came to 28, but we halve that because I'm the semi, semi. Um, so that makes it 14. Uh, Martin's total was 36. So we had mine and his together. We get um, 50. And Jeff, you gave it uh, a score of 30. So we add those together, and that mm. is 80, which is a very, very high score. And I think I think I can safely say that's the biggest variance we've had in any score category ever on this show. So, um, wow, as far as, wow. uh, as, far as the legacy and impact scores between um, Martin and Jeff. <laughs> I think it's about the legacy phone, because I was looking at the legacy in terms of pretty much within one year. But yes, I mean, I, I could entirely argue for Jeff. Jeff is totally right as well. And as are yourself, sort of, like, at this point, the legacy is pretty much been sort of wiped out again but yeah so so yeah i think we're all right yeah yeah stick stick to those guns martin don't make me come in and argue your point for you damn it (laughs) (laughs) i love your point no no you excellent point sir keep it up no thank you thank you likewise likewise all right, so we do have all our scores on the Waiting for Doom website, so if you want to see where this fits in the ladder, um, I'll be updating the scores for this shortly after this episode. So, um, 80, that actually puts it on the same level as Cosmic Odyssey, just below Flashpoint, and just above Legends. So, um, you know, it's mm. nudging the top 10, nudging the top 10. Um and just for your information, Graham, at the bottom is uh, Genesis, number the total bottom one, and then Countdown to Final mm-hmm. Crisis, then Salvation Run, and then War Games, and then we go to Amazon's Attack and things like that. So, um, so now it's the part of the show where we look at the feedback we've received on our previous episode, and that was the Robin War, and we got three comments, and Martin Gray, friend of the show, wrote, "Okay, so I was wrong about the score, and how was I to know the chapter would be so blooming nice?" It's funny, I know I bought lots of this crossover, and even listening to this show, I recall bugger all. Definitely, anyone who hasn't read Grayson and enjoys Dick should read this series. Twisty, turny stories from mainly Tim Seeley and Tom King, and amazing artwork from Mikhail Janin. Well, it's like you're almost there, reading it yourself, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and we also got feedback from Tim Price, and I don't have Tim to read his uh, feedback here, but he said, very interesting results. The discussion seemed to think that this was too Robin-centric to be a strong event. But then there's a Batman event every other year. Nightfall, Bruce Wayne Murdative, and some Superman events like New Krypton, and Wonder Woman events like The Challenge. And those didn't seem to involve the DC Unit, just the titles in the series. So it's too bad Robin War didn't bring that event feeling. If there are 31 Robins, then we could get corporate sponsorship from Baskin and Robins. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> another excellent episode, Decosids. De- 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 uh, that's an easier way than saying DCOCD, right? <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I think we did shine a light on an event that lots of people didn't really consider an event. And um, 
Yeah, maybe I didn't either. Um, and we also heard from Michael Bailey from Podcasting's Michael Bailey. And he said, I have to admit that I wasn't all that interested in the subject matter of this episode because as much as I love Robin as a character, the whole everyone can be a Robin because of these kids today and the hula hoops and the Occupy Wall Street stuff just left me cold. Thankfully, having Rob and Tom on really helped make the conversation a real treat to listen to. The various viewpoints made for a well-rounded discussion and actually made the story sound interesting to read. Great job, gentlemen. Looking forward to the next one. And this was the next one, wasn't it, Martin? Yes, and I hope that Michael Bailey enjoyed it in podcasting land. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I hope everyone will go and check out uh, Wait What and, you know, stay for the, uh, how do you describe it? the the blather. Um, it's delightful. And, um, you know, it's one of my highlights on Monday afternoon when a new episode drops, uh, being in Australia in the future. Um, and, Martin, I want everyone to check out uh, Too Dangerous for a Girl 2, I think your site is now. Um, but that is a, a wonderful review site. But thank you, guys. Thank you very much. And next time we'll be doing J. LA vs. Suicide Squad from 2017. Stream down your face and I